Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Religion on the New Books Network. My name is Diana DeHanova, and I'll be your host today. Uh, and today I'm speaking with Mark Roscoe Lusto, an anthropologist and scholar of religion, uh, studying religion and nationalism in Eastern Europe. He works at the College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts, as managing editor of the Journal of Global Catholicism. And today we'll be discussing his new book, Hungarian Catholic Intellectuals in Contemporary Romania, Reforming Apostles. Mark, welcome to the program, and thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, now, to start us off, could you talk a little bit about your research background uh, and how you came to study this particular topic? I was trained uh, by anthropologists in a religious studies department uh, after I had completed a theology degree at Harvard Divinity School. So uh, in my research and publishing, I, I wear a lot of hats and participate in multiple conversations and dialogues. Um, all three disciplines uh, I find stimulating, and they really help me understand life, culture, and religion, uh, and nationalism from different perspectives. Um, I was raised uh, Unitarian, uh, religiously, uh, in a suburb of New York City, and, and uh, was a, uh, the church was a member of the American Unitarian Church. Uh, and there is an indigenous Transylvanian Hungarian Unitarian Church, which actually helped me in my fieldwork uh, because I could introduce myself as a Unitarian. And that category made sense to many of the Catholics in Romania's Chuk Valley, which was where I was based uh, while I was doing ethnographic fieldwork. My first visit to Transylvania uh, a region of Romania, was in 2005 uh, to do archival research in the headquarters of Transylvania's indigenous Hungarian Unitarian Church. And then in 2008, I learned about uh, the Catholicism, the Catholic tradition in uh, Romania's Transylvania region and the Chuk Valley, and then also a major pilgrimage site and shrine called Cicciomio. Uh, I learned about these things for the first time from a devout Hungarian Catholic family that went every year to that pilgrimage site. And uh, uh, and so they, that was really the first time that I was introduced to the Catholic tradition in that region. Um, that's really interesting. I don't want to get too far ahead, but you say that um, you know uh, introducing yourself as a Unitarian kind of made sense to the people you talk to. So um, you feel like they sort of uh, wanted to understand where you were based spiritually um, in terms of where your questions were coming from. Uh, partly, yeah. Um, uh, you know, it was. 
you know, this is jumping, leaping ahead a little bit to um, uh, to a section of my book that uh, actually I put at the very end of the book in an epilogue, uh, where I talk about um, you know what it was like to do field work uh, with Catholics and to engage with them uh, in the process of their prayer practices. Um, uh, although I was, uh, although they knew that I was a, a, a Unitarian, they were very open about inviting me to join them uh, in various different worship practices and prayer practices, and and to the extent uh, that I could, and to the extent that um, uh, was a, a appropriate theologically and ritually, I participated, um, in, you know, within the spirit of ethnographic participant observation. Um, but we can talk, you know, in the epilogue, I, I, um, uh, I talk a lot more about in specifics, you know, what the experience of, of praying with uh, Catholics uh, in Transylvania, what that was like for me and what kind of effect it had on me and my, my embodied habitus in the world. But that's kind of leaping ahead to one of your later questions, I suspect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, yeah. I just uh, thought that, that was an interesting um, part of uh, the experience. Uh, so, f- for before we go too too far ahead, uh, for listeners who might be unfamiliar, um, could you talk a little bit about the history of Hungarian Transylvania and Transylvanian identity and kind of what that means? So, Transylvania. Uh, when I first found out about it, I first found out about it as uh, a contested region in Europe. So it's it's currently within the uh, within the borders of Romania, um, and it has uh, kind of it has hosted a, a, a long tradition also of religious diversity, um, and it's been contested by various different religious and pit- political groups uh, for. Uh, centuries, you know, longer, you know, uh, for a very long time. Um, and it's also you know, that that history of contestation is really one of the reasons why I found doing research there to be so interesting. It's um, before World War One, Transylvania belonged to Hungary when it was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, and that's partly why there is a, a sizable ethnic Hungarian minority currently living in Transylvania. There are, by some counts, 1.5 million ethnic Hungarians in Romania, uh, and they variously belong to the Reformed Protestant, Unitarian, and Catholic churches, living alongside Romanians who, by and large, belong to the Orthodox Church as well as a branch of the Catholic Church called the Greek Catholic Church or an Eastern Rite Church. Um, This is, again, not even to mention the growing number of charismatic and Pentecostal believers in the region, as well as the historical Jewish community in many Transylvanian cities and and so on and so forth. They could go on with the list. Um, There was also a a significant German-speaking Saxon community in many many areas of Transylvania uh, until 1989 in the early 1990s. So really my research uh, focusing, you know, I I didn't quite deal with all those other communities. My research in particular focused on how Hungarian educators in the ethnic Hungarian minority uh, in Transylvania created a new sense of ethnic minority and identity and purpose as teachers after Transylvania became part of Romania. Um, the Romanian government, uh, this was in the post-World War I era, when the Romanian government really took control of the region's educational system and schools 
and many ethnic Hungarian teachers lost their jobs in these institutions. And I focus specifically on Catholic educators' role in the process of rediscovering a purpose and sense of mission uh, in serving the Hungarian ethnic minority in Transylvania. Yeah, it, it's quite a fascinating region. Uh, I was able to go, I mean, this was almost 20 years ago now, um, but I studied abroad in Eastern Europe. Uh, so that was uh, something that uh, part of uh, Hungary that they uh, brought us to. Um, and we were able to stay in some rural villages, in fact, and really experience <laughs> that aspect of, of day-to-day life there as well. Um, oh, and so, you, so you've been to Transylvania? Yeah. Um, and it's fascinating how um, so many people that you meet, you know, speak five, six languages, yes. uh, just because of, of the nature kind of of, of uh, life in that part of the world. Yes, the older world. generation uh, was taught Russian in many schools, and younger generations, of course, speak English as far as, you know, German as well as other languages. So it's a very kind of ethnically polyglot region. Yeah, we uh, we were able to stay with a family who, you know, the, the father spoke German, the mother spoke Polish, then they both spoke Hungarian and Romanian, and they spoke, they had made some agreement about what they were going to speak with the children. So it's, um, yeah, it's very, very uh, rich linguistically and culturally. Um, so, uh, so in terms of your study, how would you sort of situate it uh, in terms of the existing body of scholarship um, uh, on uh, religion in this region? So uh, certainly as, as Michael Hertzfeld, who is a mentor of mine, uh, wrote in his perhaps really kind of overly generous and overly kind blurb to my book, he said that you know, one of the goals of the book uh, is to start us down the path to humanizing and us meaning anthropologists down the path to humanizing an intellectual discipline and group theologians that uh, was long treated with suspicion in the discipline of anthropology. Um, Certainly that humanizing process is one of the goals that um, I set out for myself in the book. Uh, But I also couldn't help but engage with the burgeoning political scientific literature about Christian, especially about Christian nationalism and populism. Since political science departments tend to dominate the professional knowledge about this region, about Eastern Europe as a whole, which is actually a point uh, that I take from Rogers Grubaker, who's kind of one of the most famous nationalism studies scholars uh, currently working. Um, Back in 1998, Brubaker once complained that the, the robust demand for knowledge about nationalism in the wake of the collapse of socialism and the resurgence of national politics in the 1990s, that this robust demand was was fueling what he called, quote, an analytically primitive uh, current in the study of nationalism, end quote. Um, So 22 years later, uh, we could perhaps say the same thing about recent research on Christian nationalism in Eastern Europe, which, uh, and this was an argument that I make in the book, which suffers, I think, from an unacknowledged moral bias when scholars speak about Christianity, and specifically when political scientists refer to Christianity being hijacked, nationalized, or culturalized by politicians. And I think that characterization, which is really more of a caricature, uh, really more accurately describes the Christianity that political scientists want to see in the region rather than an objective attempt to understand current trends in political culture. Um, So what I try to do to kind of um, at least break open and, and complicate that, I think, somewhat 
uh, again, caricatured view of uh, Christianity and nationalism. I try to understand the actual practice of, of Catholic theologians' involvement in a populist movement as a form of creative religious agency. Uh, really a creative religious agency that takes shape within uh, broader fields uh, of uh, post-socialist culture and specifically uh, post-socialist consumer culture. Um, So I see today's Transylvanian Catholic educators trying to sustain and even readapt an experience of of laboring alongside God, one of their basic concepts, laboring alongside God that they inherited from their predecessors uh, in the interwar period. And they do so by trying to teach secular urbanites from Hungary who come to Transylvania to donate their time and their resources to help Transylvanian Hungarian schools. They try to teach secular urbanites um, how to experience God working with them uh, in these charitable projects. Mm-hmm. It's, it's such an interesting and com- very complex intersection uh, between political science and anthropology and religious state studies. Um, it's something I see in my own work because I study uh, religion in Russia and Ukraine. Uh, and just the kind of ap- absolute mess that's been made of the reporting, especially in the mainstream press, about what is going on in Ukraine religiously and in wider Eastern Europe and in post-socialist countries, um, I think has been painful to watch for, you know, every Every, everyone who studies that region. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly there's, you know, there's a lot of, um, I, I read this a lot in the political science literature, a lot of anxiety about uh, how journalists write about um, political culture uh, and government um, and uh, religion as well. Um, and a lot of anxiety about whether that's having an influence on political scientists and their approach to uh, current trends in this region. You know, there's a lot of, there are occasionally complaints about, um, you know, journalistic style or journalistic interpretations uh, of, um, uh, of, of political phenomena in Eastern Europe. And, and that's always that seems always to be said from a very pejorative perspective as if we need to draw a complete, you know, boundary line between these, between journalists and scholars. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, w- I wish that uh, <laughs> maybe there were more uh, avenues for productive dialogue right between the two groups. Um, so uh, could you talk a little bit more about your fieldwork experience and how you decided uh, where you, particularly you were going to do it and who uh, your research subjects were going to be? Yeah, you know, I, I, um, uh, I tried to approach fieldwork uh, from uh, uh, kind of a holistic and intuitive methodological perspective. You know, I... I um, uh, I very rarely felt like I was selecting research subjects or choosing who to interview or, you know, seeking out uh, particular uh, individuals who had particularly influential roles in various different institutions. Um, uh, you know, just to give you an example of kind of how I ended up uh, studying one of the institutions that uh, ended up being the focus of uh, of a chapter of an entire chapter of my book. So this is um, chapter, I believe it's chapter three uh, on composure. Um, actually, no, it's chapter four called Composure, which is really about um, 
uh, a volunteer choir uh, that sings in a, uh, one of the largest Catholic churches in Transylvania, very famous Catholic church. Um, and I heard about the volunteer choir um, because uh, I ended up renting a room uh, from a member of the alto section <laughs> when I first got to Transylvania. Uh, you know, I just I, I answered an ad, uh, rented her room, and then she told me about this choir, and that's how I ended up. I, I she gave me the phone number of the choir director, and literally his only question to me uh, when I asked if I could, you know, sing with a choir was, "Can you sing?" Um, and I said yes, and I suddenly was a member of the choir. So, and that's how, you know, one entire chapter of my book, uh, uh, that was the, you know, th- that's how it got started. So um, there was a lot of kind of accidentalness uh, and um, uh, about uh, choosing research subjects or just, you know, finding my way into the context that, that ended up being um, at the heart of my book uh, empirically. Um, so, you know, the, which is also to say that, that when I think back on, on, on my ethnography, that the, the ethnography that felt the richest to me, um, was, was the, um, the moments when I wasn't really doing formal or even semi-formal interviews, but when I was really participating and observing at the same time, more kind of improvised and indirectly coordinated interactions um, uh, when people, you know, to, to put it uh, a little bit more informally, when people were just hanging out <laughs> and chatting with each other. Um, so uh, at one of the, uh, in chapter three of the book, I talk about um, a week-long volunteer construction project, sort of like uh, what folks in, in North America and the United States might know of as kind of a Habitat for Humanity project. Uh, it was sort of like that. We were uh, helping to repair uh, a building at, um, uh, at uh, a Catholic orphanage. Uh, and the group was primarily visitors, volunteer visitors from Hungary, from urban Hungary. Um, and, uh, during the kind of week long construction project, um, of course, you know, I paid attention to the priests and what they said during their sermons and kind of the more formal, um, statements about how we were supposed to be interpreting, um, our work together that week. But I also wrote in, in, uh, this chapter, I wrote about, um, uh, a former orphan who had kind of graduated, uh, he was now in his early 20s, he'd graduated and lived in that orphanage. He was now living uh, nearby in the area. And during the, during the construction project, he kind of led volunteers, including me, to a nearby public fountain to fill the water bottles because it was hot and dusty in August. Um, and we were digging a lot. Um, and kind of near the fountain, there was a, a, a swimming hole. And uh, on a couple of occasions, he invited me and some other folks to go swimming with him to kind of take some of the heat off and, and to cool ourselves down. Um, and, you know, this very somewhat spontaneous, uh, very informal, uh, you know, improvised set of interactions ended up, you know, being uh, one of the kind of core uh, vignettes in this chapter of my book, and I mined it for some significant uh, kind of cultural insight into the social dynamics, especially between uh, orphans and the institutions and the leaders of the of these educational institutions um, that um, uh, 
uh, yeah, I'm minded for some insight into the social dynamics between those figures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought it was, it was one of my uh, favorite parts of the book um, and just in general, sort of the way that uh, you wove together uh, the research and the experiential uh, element uh, of the study was really um, interesting. You know, it was, um, uh, I especially, you know, I especially liked it also because it felt like a very, and I think this was, you know, intuitively intentional, if, you know, if that's not a contradiction in terms, um, uh, an intuitively intentional choice on the part of the young man who led us to, to, you know, on those swimming excursions, it was a very, it created a sense of intimacy amongst us, um, uh, who were there kind of resting alongside the, the swimming hole. Um, but, you know, it was also interesting because it, you know, directly recreated some of the stories basically that were kind of advertisements um, uh, by the director of the orphanage, who was a, a very famous Catholic priest named Chaba Boita, um, uh, who himself talks in kind of public statements and advertisements about um, how he really likes taking Hungarian volunteers on swimming excursions. Uh, And that's a real highlight for him about uh, volunteer projects in Transylvania. So, you know, on the one hand, you could say that the young man who, who in the book I call Ombrush, which is a a pseudonym. um, uh, On the one hand, Ombrush was, you know, basically recreating and, and even mimicking or, um, uh, you know, the, uh, what the director of the orphanage was telling him to do, uh, to cater to the expectations and interests basically of, uh, visiting Hungarian volunteers. Um, and on the other hand, and this was, you know, something that I had to kind of unpack out of, you know, uh, out of an understanding of, uh, of Ombrush's, position and role in uh, Transylvania Hungarian culture itself, uh, you know, he was from a different region and was facing really demands, suggestions that he go back to his, uh, the village where he was born, even though he hadn't lived there since he was a very young child, he was facing suggestions constantly to go back to that village um, uh, and settle there and take up his life there. And he didn't want to, he said, on a couple of occasions that he was not interested in going back to that village because he hadn't been there since he was a child and he didn't really know anybody there. So here he was kind of making a claim to local knowledge of these hidden swimming holes and the kind of almost secret rules about how to use these swimming holes, um, how to find them, who should go there. He was making a claim to knowing the region around the orphanage where he had grown up um, uh, against, over and against these these demands that he returned back to his natal village, which was uh, quite a distance away. So there was, there was a lot going on in these kind of very... Um, you know, even a significant political dimension, you could even say, to to what felt like, you know, very intuitive and even improvised decisions to go swimming on a hot day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's certainly not the kind of thing that you can find in the archives, right? You really need to build these relationships. 
Um, so, uh, one of the key premises of your book, just to get back a little bit to terminology, is that um, theologians ought to be understood and studied as intellectuals. That's a quote. Um, so, how would you define um, an intellectual? Um, and how is the intellectual and social work of theologians usually framed? Uh, so it's a great question. I don't actually give a definition of the intellectual in my book. So you're sort of kind of calling me out <laughs> a little bit. Um, but actually, I appreciate it because it gives me a chance to to say exactly why I didn't. And it was actually it was an intentional choice on my part. Um, uh, and it had two specific uh, reasons. Uh, there were two specific reasons for, for not giving a definition of the intellectual. The first was partly strategic because so often I feel like scholars end up bickering about a definition instead of deeply and thoughtfully engaging with a book's argument. Um, and so in the end, you know, the, whether it's the reviews or, um, or debates afterwards or articles that are published and engaging with the, with a book or whatever, it always ends up becoming about the definition rather than about the overall arc and narrative of the book itself. Um, That's fair. Uh, so what? That's fair. <laughs> so, so it was partly strategic, but then there was also a kind of an element of, of, of principle and, and, and this is sort of out of respect for one of the, uh, writers who really had a, a strong influence on uh, on the course of the book, which was Zygmunt Bauman's observation. So Zygmunt Bauman was a historian and sociologist who has written a lot about Eastern Europe, and um, he, uh, you know, he observed, and I quote this in the book, that any knowledge about intellectuals is inevitably relational and dialogical, since. Uh, and this, you know, and this is not a quotation because this is my rather elliptic interpretation of what he said, um, or elliptical, uh, uh, you know, that knowledge by intellectuals for intellectuals about intellectuals is always going to involve somehow intellectuals looking at themselves because, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, um, uh, cause you know, there's, um, there's a, a reflexive element to, to the, to any kind of research about intellectuals. Um, so it, to attempt a definition of, uh, of what the intellectual is would feel like a, a, a refusal, I guess, of that kind of essential relational matrix, uh, an attempt to halt the give and take of dialogue uh, between uh, really a community of anthropological intellectuals who are studying intellectuals and their relationships with Transylvanian and Hungarian intellectuals themselves. So I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to, you know, give a definition because they also have this kind of, um, you know, definitions have this pretension to being universalistic, uh, and not only in time, but also in space. So you can say that, you know, a definition is supposed to be applicable in all human societies and throughout all time. And, and, and that just seemed like a way of stopping the conversation between me and Transylvanian Hungarian intellectuals rather than opening up, opening it up. Um, so I guess I, I, I wanted folks to try to puzzle out for themselves from the, from the, from the actual lived experience that I represented in the book, uh, what it's like to be an educator, uh, in the Transylvanian Hungarian community today. So that, that was sort of the more principled goal, but okay. You know, having said all of those caveats, (laughs) Uh, you know, I, 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 uh, I, I'm not going to be like, you know, completely um, uh, intransigent about this. So I do like how Zygmunt Bauman 
in his book, you know, the, the title of his book is Legislators and Interpreters. So he doesn't really define intellectuals so much as he kind of tells us what they do um, and what kinds of objects they are distinctively concerned with. So, you know, legislators write laws and he's there pointing to the historical period when intellectuals were embedded in the state. Um, And then interpreters, uh, uh, he thinks of as interpreting cultural meanings. uh, And that is his kind of thesis that, you know, the nation state is, um, uh, this was, he was writing in the 1990s and 2000s, and he saw the nation state kind of declining in significance and the growth of transnational cultural flows. And so, you know, uh, intellectuals' primary objects there were uh, was kind of free flowing cultures, and they their work was interpretation. and And um, I, I kind of disagree with that latter specific finding. I think you know his the the optimistic view of the declining significance of the nation state is has not borne out exactly as he predicted in history. Um, uh, but uh, I would say just kind of following his approach, which I found. Inspiring, I would say that, uh, you know, I would call theologians reformers right? in the sense of re-forming uh, um, uh, ethical subjects. Um, so, you know, in the Transylvanian Hungarian intellectual tradition, which was strongly influenced by Protestantism, um, you know, the idea of reforming Christian apostles, the early Christian intellectuals uh, in the you know second and third century, that was a really dominant goal. Um, and so, if I had to you know caricature or not caricature but characterize um, uh, you know theologians and what their uh, objects are and what their work is about, as I would say, kind of capturing it in this phrase reforming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's fascinating, and I I actually really like the the sort of resistance to a definition because um, I think we also spend a lot of time in the study of religion around defining what is and is not a religion, and I think sometimes it's it can be um, actually, as you said, sort of halting of dialogue. Um, so, could you um, talk a little bit more about the cultural and intellectual tradition of Hungarian Transylvania uh, vis-a-vis Hungary, and what are some of the distinctive features? So certainly, uh, in in Hungary, as in Transylvania, um, religious intellectuals are defined by a Catholic and Protestant divide and dialogue. Um, in Hungary, um, at least in the interwar period, the key symbols that differentiated Catholics from Protestants concerned uh, the nature and character of the Hungarian state. So for Catholics, King Stephen's crown, which is actually the image that's on the front cover of my book, uh, blurred and uh, you know obscured, um, uh, but still kind of recognizable as King Stephen's crown, uh, that image evokes notions of empire and monarchy, uh, and it's kind of strongly associated with Catholicism. Protestants, in contrast, looked to the 19 to the 1848 revolution, uh, led by members of which which was led by members of the Reformed Church, and and uh, they kind of by remembering those figures center Hungary's republican tradition uh, of governance. Now, the question of the state, I argue, was marginal to the Transylvanian Hungarian intellectual tradition. 
uh, in its interwar incarnation when it really began, because the tradition was itself a response to the disappearance uh, of the Hungarian state from uh, Transylvanian Hungarian intellectual life after World War I. Um, so, you know, they were trying to really figure out how to, um, how to have an intellectual tradition in the absence of a state. Uh, Transylvanian Hungarian reformed Protestant theologians broke new ground in the interwar period by coming up with a notion of vocational authority. Um, this internal sense of being called to teach that, you know, was really a lot like a conversion. Um, uh, an internal sense of being called to teach that was really exemplified by the early Christian apostles um, before the Catholic Church became allied with the power of the Roman Empire. So they, you know, really had this sense of, okay, well, if we're going to have a, a, a non-state-centered notion of pedagogical authority, let's look to the Christians who did not depend on any state to do their work. And, and they thought that this was best exemplified by the pre-Roman uh, Empire, pre-Catholic Church uh, uh, period of the early Christian apostles. Interwar Catholics were not only late to the game of kind of reimagining uh, pedagogical authority in the absence of a state, but they faced the challenge of overcoming their church's deep antagonism towards Reformed Protestants, um, who at this time in the 20s and 30s, the Pope was still calling infidels and apostates. So, you know, it was a challenge for them to try to be in dialogue with uh, uh, Protestants, uh, Reformed Protestants, especially because, you know, the leader of their church was saying, you know, how dare you? Uh, don't you even dare, rather. Uh, so to get on board with the project of crafting, you know, an ethnic minority intellectual tradition that rested on this notion of intellectual authority outside the state, Transylvanian Hungarian Catholics really had to figure out how to overcome this historical antipathy how to find ways to embrace the agenda of reforming institutions by looking to the early Christian apostles. And they had to do this without raising alarms about abandoning their faith for Protestantism. It was you know, a, a delicate high wire act uh, involving lots of contradictions and uh, you know, attempts at resolving uh, those contradictions that were never you know, fully and finally uh, um, resolved uh, that you know, I try to kind of trace in my book. Mm-hmm. Um, and what is the um, contemporary relationship between the Transylvanian Hungarian uh, volunteer teachers and, and the state? Well, in in in, in many ways, the you know, the volunteer well, so the volunteers from Hungary who go and kind of donate their time charitably to uh, to Transylvanian Hungarian educational institutions are in many ways representatives of the state. Um, so they, you know, there is a, a, a strong sense that when Transylvanian Hungarian teachers are interacting with these volunteers, that what's at stake is, uh, you know, the ongoing support of the Hungarian state uh, for Transylvanian Hungarian intellectuals uh, and the educational system. So there's, a, there's clearly a lot at stake in dealing with volunteers. Um, but my book itself begins with kind of the most famous contemporary Transylvanian-Hungarian educator who's a, a Catholic priest and Franciscan friar named Chaba Boite, who I've, I've already mentioned. I start with him standing on the steps of the Hungarian parliament building in Budapest. 
accepting an award from the newly elected right-wing Hungarian government, which has since gone on to, you know, become very famous for being strongly nationalistic and populist. Um, and Viktor Orban is, you know, almost daily in the in the English language international news. <laughs> right. Um, uh, so, you know, a lot of people know who we're talking about when I mention this. So, you know, this priest, uh, Chaba Boyta, is standing on the steps of the uh, of the Hungarian parliament building, accepting an award from Orban's new government. So really, the relationship between the Hungarian state and Transylvanian Hungarian intellectuals is, is at the heart of my book. And that's really what I tried to convey by putting that scene, you know, at the very beginning. Um, and it's really, it's also a departure from previous research on Transylvanian Hungarian intellectuals, which presented their work really within the matrix of state sovereignty and the contest between the Romanian and Hungarian states over control of Transylvania. So here I wanted to foreground the relationship between Transylvanian Hungarian intellectuals and the Hungarian state, um, and uh, which, which, you know, which, uh, as a way to kind of question exactly how straightforwardly we might understand that relationship. Um, so when it comes to relations with the Romanian state, Transylvanian Hungarian educators generally kind of see it as antagonistic and, and they're very suspicious of it. Um, and that's, you know, they've inherited that from uh, really from the interwar period when uh, the folks who who originated the Transylvanian Hungarian intellectual tradition um, uh, were kind of, um, they, they had gotten fired from the educational institutions that they worked at uh, by the Romanian state. So that they're kind of, they're, they were uh, born in, uh, into this tradition or revived this tradition uh, and inherited from it uh, a sense of suspicion towards the Romanian state. Um, uh, but the relationship with the Hungarian state is another matter entirely, and it's it's filled with, a, you know, much many more ambiguous gestures, and it's it is deeply unstable, even if it might appear on the surface to be very straightforward, a matter of kind of a client patron. Uh, bond, clients being the Transylvanian Hungarian educators and the patron being the state. You know, it's filled with um, quiet gestures and indirect implications that convey kind of ambiguous identifications and gratitudes, stifled resentments, confusions, ironic humor, anxiety, lots of redirected critique. There's just, there's all sorts of subtle messaging um, that goes on when um, Hungarian, Transylvanian Hungarian educators encounter the Hungarian state. So one of my favorite examples of this is from my fieldwork with the Catholic Church Choir that I've mentioned um, you know, like other educators, they pictured themselves teaching uh, the people, which they generally understood as peasants, uh, villagers, uh, and in this case, they were teaching them how to worship properly. Um, and as a resort, as a reward for their volunteer service, uh, the Catholic Church worked with the Hungarian government to organize a vacation. And we together, I was part of this group, and we went on a singing tour of, of various cities in Hungary. Um, uh, and uh, inviting us onto this tour, we got a letter from uh, Hungary's Christian, uh, an official in Hungary's Christian Democratic People's Party, which is 
the basically a right wing Christian partner to the current uh, Fidesz party that governs Hungary. And they've been partners together in governing Hungary now for uh, the last 12 years, since 2010. Um, and in the letter, this this kind of politician, this uh, official, uh, called the choir a shining accomplishment of Hungary's Christian culture that had achieved a European level of fame. And I, you know, immediately upon reading, when the choir director read this sentence out loud, the entire choir just burst out into laughter. Um, and, it, and it became a recurring joke where people would you know, call, you know, say, oh, oh, we're our European level fame, famous choir, aren't we? And everybody would laugh. And it was just, you know, recurring uh, joke that, that, you know, never failed to, to bring a smile to the choir member's face. And, and in the end, it was, it was, um, uh, I interpret this this joke kind of as expressing a, a deeper anxiety about how the Hungarian government was really appropriating the work of Transylvanian Hungarian educators for its own purposes. That is showing off on the European stage, uh, you know, its own you know accomplishments in creating uh, and fostering a Christian culture. Uh, you know, for various different reasons, Transylvanian Hungarian volunteer educators, you know, they couldn't they didn't feel capable of disputing this, you know, reinterpretation, this appropriation of their work openly. Um, they were after all kind of clients of this patron state, but they could laugh about how the government was overbilling their skills. <laughs> uh, I mean, these were basically lawyers and, um, uh, and housewives and retirees and teachers uh, and, bureaucrats and secretaries, uh, and they were singing in a choir in their free time, right? And so, you know, they, they, they could joke about, about uh, how the state was overbilling uh, their skills when they couldn't, you know, openly uh, refuse this effort to appropriate their project for other goals and means. Oh, that, that's fascinating. There's a whole genre, um, you know, in Russian and Ukrainian of jokes um, about the, the, these kinds of relationships, <laughs> um, at least during um, during communism between the government and various groups and sort of on the one hand uh, rejecting the West and on the other hand showing um, how important they were in the West. Right. So it uh, seems resonant of that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, now the chapters of your book are named after the key precepts that guide the educational work of the Hungarian Catholic intellectuals. Um, so could you talk a little bit about those? Certainly. So my, my chapter titles are single word terms, and, and this was uh, my desire for brevity, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, uh, being manifested here. Um uh, always say less when uh, when it's you know especially when it's possible to say more. Um, uh, and so the single word terms are love, composure, courtliness, and penitence. Um, and these are the virtues that that were exemplified by each of the groups in which I did my field work: an orphanage network, uh, the choir that I've mentioned, uh, a knighthood order, and then another orphanage network, which kind of concludes the ethnographic elements of my book. Um, together, they represent uh, a suite of ethical values that that I believe kind of helped constitute or was basically uh, the ethnic minority intellectual culture, or, or what I call the Transylvanian Hungarian intellectual tradition. And they inherited 
you know, these virtues. And, and here I'm, I'm, I was drawing on really excellent intellectual historical work by scholars like Stefano Bottoni um, and uh, Nando Arbardi, um, uh, who, who have written about, and also Bolaj Trecheni, uh, who have written about uh, the interwar period, especially, uh, and kind of the ethical worldview of, of Hungarian intellectuals in the interwar period. So I was really drawing a lot on uh, what they had to write about um, uh, the 1920s and 30s. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you touched on this just a little bit earlier. Um, could you talk a little bit more about the impact of socialist era educational practice on contemporary um, education? Yeah, so in the, the 1980s was a period, uh, you know, and that's really the, that was the direct historical context, that, uh, the 1980s was the direct historical background that uh, Transylvanian Hungarian educators were looking to when they sought to when they started their work in in the 1990s and 2000s. Um, uh, the 1980s was a period of of, of robust nationalism, uh, you might call it, in the Romanian educational system, especially, and uh, this raised uh, a lot of anxieties among Transylvanian Hungarians um, about, especially about cultural assimilation. Um, and then these anxieties really informed and set the stage for Transylvanian Hungarian intellectuals in the 1990s to draw comparisons between the interwar period and the post-socialist period, both eras in which, at least from the perspective of ethnic minority intellectuals, the Romanian state uh, was using education to nationalize Transylvania's Hungarian population. Uh, in the process uh, ethnic minority intellectuals kind of revived the intellectual tradition that um, they had that had originated in the interwar period and had originated to deal with uh, what they saw as a similar set of circumstances. So, uh, in the end, I, I I'm agnostic in the book about whether this comparison is accurate. Um, that's not really a question that. Uh, I wanted to answer or felt qualified to answer, but I was more interested in in the kinds of consequences, the social consequences that flowed from uh, this comparison, this analogy, uh, and the decision to revive the uh, interwar tradition of intellectualism uh, and the, the kind of problems that it, it created, but also the opportunities that it created for intellectuals in the post-socialist period. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I wanted to circle back um, to something we touched on in the beginning. Um, so in your conclusion, you uh, call an anthropologist of Christianity to write for Christian publications. Uh, so could you talk a little bit about your work in this area and the value that you see anthropologists bringing to um, publications um, like that? Yeah, so, um, you know, it's a, it, it, it is a, a complicated question for many anthropologists about how to uh, it's always been complicated, uh, no matter what kind of identification we're talking about for anthropologists to suss out and to explore and figure out exactly how their various different identities impact upon or um, shape their relationships with uh, subjects in the field. And it's become even more complicated, I think, now that now that anthropologists, a great number of them have have decided to study Christian communities in particular. Um, and uh, in, in one uh, 
section of the book, my conclusion, I talk about uh, some of my experience doing public scholarship by um, publishing uh, opinion articles, uh, harshly critical of Hungary's right-wing government in Christian magazines, um, and how that affected uh, and reshaped some of the relationships uh, that I had with uh, folks who I met in Transylvania. Um, uh, you know, but the, the just as important, uh, I think, to understanding my relationships with the, the folks that I met in Transylvania, the Catholics and Unitarians and Protestants uh, who were part of the Transylvanian Hungarian community, just as important, I think, was was the prayer practices that I took up while I was doing fieldwork. And I mentioned this a little bit at the beginning of, of the interview. And I suspect that that you began the interview with a question about how I came to study this topic because it's a good warm up. You know, it's a uh, it's something of an easy question to answer. Um, so I'm probably not the first person or the last person you'll ask that question to uh, at the start of the interview. Um, so you know, there is, I think, at least in anthropology, a formula for answering this question, and it's a it's a pretty set standard, and and for that reason, easy formula. In uh, an informant asks the anthropologist, and, and I kind of recreated it in that in that first answer, in the first you know part of our conversation. In a, an informant asks the anthropologist about ethnic and religious identity. Then step two, the anthropologist responds and and makes sense according to the informant's categories and then step three there are a few complications step four but these don't prevent the anthropologist from fitting in making friends and eventually conducting a successful research project and a formula uh end of paragraph and that's generally you'll find that exact paragraph uh at the beginning of many uh uh books in the introduction it's usually just about a paragraph um uh, at the beginning of many uh, anthropological monographs, so anthropologists seem to have—they have seemed to have settled on this formula in the wake of what was called uh, the self-reflexive turn of the 1980s and 90s, when uh, social scientists, often using kind of a loosely autobiographical writing style, critically examined uh, their relationships with the people that they got to know at their field sites, as well as the historical and social forces that kind of gave particular shape to these relationships and friendships and various different other types of, of uh, relationships and interactions that they had in the field, mentorships uh, as well. Um, so this, and the, the formula now is as close as anthropologists get to kind of a reflexive examination of, uh, of our relationships with subjects and especially in, in the anthropology of religion. In the epilogue to my book, I try to develop a claim that uh, although anthropologists have settled on this formula, its continuing use represents what I think of as, as uh, intellectual complacency, um, especially in the, in the wake of anthropologists' really detailed and, and really you know, rich and theoretically robust um, examinations of uh, Christian traditions. Uh, especially Christian traditions that seek to convert and otherwise transform their a- adherents' worldviews. Um, so this encounter with with a transformation-seeking tradition, uh, in to me, and uh, to my mind, called to mind the anthropologist Michael Tausig's ins- insistence that fieldwork always changes you, 
uh, always changes anthropologists in some fundamental way. Um, uh, Tausig, in one of his books, uh, basically kind of sums up uh, the anthropological project by saying that the great story in anthropology, and this is a, a quote, is how such a, a change is dealt with, how such a change that the anthropologist experiences is dealt with, whether it is recognized and how it is acted upon in the rest of the anthropologist's life until death. Um, and then the other thing, uh, and then end quote, uh, the other thing that drew me to, to Tausig, and I reflect on him a lot in the epilogue, uh, was the late motif of, of whimsy and playfulness that runs throughout his work. Um, uh, that's one of his kind of hallmarks is that he, he has a very elliptical writing style. He doesn't uh, strive. He almost strives for the opposite of linearity. Uh, and um, uh, he's, you know, he's a very creative and playful and even, you know, uh, frustrating writer. If you're expecting uh, a straightforward argument in any of his books. Um, uh, and, you know, this, this whimsy and playfulness was very compelling to me, um, primarily, uh, you know, as, a, as an alternative to what I felt like was a very dominant um, way of understanding the relationship between uh, uh, an anthropologist and uh, Christian subjects whom the anthropologist will meet in the field. Uh, and this alternative that the... the, the um, the book that I had in mind as, uh, you know, before thinking about Tausig was a book by Susan Friend Harding, um, very famously conducted fieldwork in the early 1990s with uh, American evangelical Protestants in Virginia. Uh, the book is called uh, The Book of Jerry Falwell, Fundamentalist Language and Politics. And for many years, um, I have you ever heard of it? Yeah, it's very famous. Um, and for many years, it was one of the only extended reflections on the particular problems posed by doing ethnographic fieldwork as an anthropologist in a community that makes conversion a primary objective and goal. Um, so, you know, except that Harding talks about kind of getting her worldview violently displaced, (laughs) uh, in the face of the evangelical, efforts of her subjects. And she really dives deeply into one of the more fearful and anxious modes of engagement that historically the secular enlightenment in the West has adopted towards evangelical Protestant Christians who are out to, you know, who, who make conversion uh, a central mode of their being in the world. Um, and Harding's kind of really anxious imaginary just just didn't line up with my experience of feeling like the Catholic women who invited me to join, especially their rosary prayer groups, were, were playing tricks on me, using their voices. And this is a, a quote di- that I draw directly from my field notes, my diary, using their voices like ventriloquists, uh, casting their voices around the room while they were praying the rosary, which is... A, a prayer practice centered on the recitation of uh, a joint recitation of a single rote memorized text. Uh, so I, I went, you know, inspired by this observation that I read and that I wrote and then read later on in my own diary about ventriloquism uh, and kind of playfulness. I went in search of, of an anthropological a disciplinary trajectory that could help me understand, you know, this, this, whimsy that I seemed compelled to attribute to to the women in my prayer group. Um, 
the whimsy that it seemed they were embodying even as they sought to convert me to Catholicism, which was you know, very different from the kind of anxious menace that Susan Friend Harding seemed to find in her encounters with evangelical Protestants. And that's what started me down the path to Tausig's work. Uh, so I'm afraid I have another standard question to wrap oh, up with. <laughs> okay. um, I just wanted to ask you uh, to talk about your current research or if there's anything else that you'd like um, people to know about uh, yes. what you're working on now. Uh, certainly. So so if this book was primarily about uh, Transylvanian Hungarians in their relationships with Hungarians from Hungary and the Hungarian state, um, I'm kind of reversing the perspective in my next book uh, and talking about Hungarians from Hungary who travel to Transylvania and how they sustain a connection with the agenda of the right-wing Hungarian state, despite uh, the various different problems that they encounter uh, when they try to embody this in relationships with Transylvanian Hungarians in Transylvania. So I'm, I'm going from Transylvanian Hungarians to now looking at Hungarians from Hungary and how they are participating in Hungarian political culture, especially um, by uh, going on uh, tourist trips and charitable uh, excursions to Transylvania. The, one of the premises of this book is, is to try to complicate a little bit um, uh, portrayals of, of um, political culture in contemporary Eastern Europe, which is there's been an explosion of interest in populism and extremist right-wing nationalism. And I wanted to try to understand how a group that you might call the center-right relate to extremism, um, how they manage to tolerate its presence among them, um, uh, at events in Transylvania because a lot of uh, center-right Hungarians go to Transylvania where they meet uh, folks who are, you know, basically um, who like listening to heavy metal and uh, who enjoy um, uh, uh, what you might call, you know, breaking taboos uh, and, you know, center-right folks uh, breaking political taboos, behavioral taboos, getting into uh, taking chances by getting into somewhat um, confrontational interactions with Romanian authorities while they're in Transylvania and center right folks. Um, this makes them very uncomfortable. Um, so my interest is in trying to, you know, differentiate um, the center right from the extreme right, which has sort of become lumped together in uh, research on political culture recently, and to try to understand the processes of distinction and uh, differentiation that help center right folks feel like they're not quite on board with the uh, agenda of extremists. Mm, that's really interesting. Well, I'll, I'll look forward to, to reading that uh, when it comes out. Um, so I've been speaking with Mark Roscoe Lusto, author of Hungarian Catholic Intellectuals and Contemporary Romania, Reforming Apostles, uh, and that is available now from uh, Palgrave Macmillan. Mark, thank you so much again for joining me today. Thank you.